Hi everyone and welcome to the Future of Place podcast, your podcast for strategies on the future of place and the evolving relationships between people, place, technology and data. My name is Adam Beck. I'm host of the podcast and at the Future of Place, we believe that place is the superior driver for our economy, an accelerator for sustainability, productivity and inclusivity in our cities, communities and towns. The work that we're doing is guided by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, what we refer to as the Global Goals. You can find out more about our work at the Future of Place if you head to our website, futureofplace.global. But for now, let's discuss. Well, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Future of Place podcast. My name is Adam Beck, your host, my day job executive director at the Smart Cities Council for Australia and New Zealand. Welcome to episode two of the podcast. And we head over to Florida in the United States and with me on the line, uh, a good friend that I used to hang out with a lot in person when I was living over in the US, Lisa Nissenson. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Well, and thank you for um, hosting. Uh, one of the reasons I'm excited about this is because in the whole world of technology and places, you are one of those rare people who understands that it's not just about the technology um, or even backfitting it onto the places we have, but that, that really a, a really great design is the operating system of a smart city. So if you start with that, then the technology can fall into place. And so I just really love you directing these conversations. Well, it only happens with good guests and peers like yourself, Lisa, but thank you for those kind words. Can we start by getting a little bit of a bio? Who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? I have been an urban designer for about 30 years, I actually got my start as a civic activist. And I had to learn land use and transportation just because there were some decisions coming along in my own neighborhood that just weren't quite there. And so that meant we had to teach ourselves urban planning and transit and transit-oriented development. So all of the things that we used to fight against, like height and density and, and things like that, we realized were actually part of the great placemaking and sustainability that we gave lip service to. And so I was just able to cobble a career together over time with the US EPA's uh, Smart Growth Program, working as a consultant. I worked in local government at the county level. I started my own little tech startup and put that on the back burner when I found my current job as vice president for new mobility and connected communities with a mid-size A&E firm that really wanted to make sure that it was getting in front of the future for its clients and, and for the business. And so for the past two years, I've been building those new service lines that do pull together the land use plus the transportation, plus the infrastructure design that we need to actually put stuff in the ground that works. So that's a little bit about me. Lovely, thank you so much. And our topic of conversation today is going to be new mobility. Lisa, let's start. So we've got four questions to get through. First question, just an opening statement from you 
about new mobility, just your high level strategic view on the concept? Well, actually, I think of it in two different ways. The first one is I get asked a lot, what is the difference between transportation and mobility? Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the big aha moments is that with transportation, we just spent a lot of our profession looking at how to move mostly cars through the system or through segments, just looking at travel time savings. Uh, And then we started to sprinkle in pedestrians and bicycles on the side. Then we realized that that really was not going to deliver a system that gave us a lot of different benefits. And so what it, mobility, the idea of mobility is you're moving people and and even moving packages these days through system uh, in ways that give you a lot of different options. Um, And some of that even extends to things like the mobility as a service like how that evolution is going to help people make better decisions. So the tent got a lot bigger as to what you look at. And and that tent can include things like land use and better infrastructure, the communications. The second way I look at it is through this innovation in vehicle types that is exploding. Um, And of course, everybody knows the, the shared scooters. When they think new mobility, it's sort of that what pops into mind. But if you look at what's happening now and that has accelerated during the pandemic, are things like the e-bikes have taken off, mainly in areas of people who are looking to replace transit trips amongst my clients. I've interviewed a lot. But then you have all of these different delivery vehicle types, everything from the sidewalk pods to neuros on street grocery delivery vehicle that's like a small Fiat with wing doors. You've got drones. So there's that. Then you have all these people who are modifying low-speed electric cars. I I think here in stateside, we derogatively refer to them as glorified golf carts. But, you know, you look at gym cars, you look at some of the all-electric vehicles. Some of those, you know, are very low speeds. Others are coming along into bespoke models where you have just that drivetrain platform that you could plop things on almost like Lego sets. So it could be a delivery vehicle in the afternoon, but a coffee shop that's roving around the community, you know, the next morning. So, so I think that what that does is it's fun and people love the ideas, but from a practical matter, what goes in what lane or on mm-hmm. the sidewalk? When you have all this new mix of these different vehicle types going at different speeds with varying levels of traveler protection, and I don't think we've thought that one out as much as as we should. So when I think about new mobility, it's those two things, the bigger tent and then the vehicle types. So let's now turn to sort of where we're at and what the state of play is. Touch on the status and maybe from sort of two perspectives, maybe from a policy perspective, and then maybe from a technology perspective, you know, there's a lot of cool ideas and images that we see when we turn the pages of a brochure, but state of play now, where are we at policy and the technology? So from a policy standpoint, I think COVID just highlighted a lot of our entrenched habits 
with the automobile. And, and really what we've seen is even with the pandemic and more people working from home, traffic levels have continued to creep up to pre-COVID levels. And on the flip side of that, though, we are also seeing the notion of vision zero, that yes. you know any death or, or casualty is unacceptable. Those are now being integrated into state-level plans, including Texas and Florida. Mm. And if you had told me that a year ago, I, I would have you know, fallen off my chair mm. because it is, it's quite a leap forward in policy. So it, it begs the question of, are we ready to actually drill down into the factors that make casualties happen in the first place? And it, it comes with some unpopular notions of you, you're telling drivers they need to slow down mm. uh, because speed is one of the top reasons. You've got to build better and even segregated travel ways for bicyclists and even things like e-bikes. You've got to do that. So what may sound good on paper may translate into some policy decisions that we've really got to think about how to sell to the traveling public. So those are interesting. From the autonomous worldview that's going on now, the pandemic actually gave a lot of autonomous vehicle companies permission to fine-tune their algorithms on roads where there weren't any travelers yeah. you know, about a year ago. So the grocery store, the shuttles are actually booming here stateside. Do you have a lot of autonomous shuttle companies in Australia right now? We, we, we had uh, we had certainly and continue to have a range of pilots and trials going on and some have been going for, for multiple years you know easy mile is has got representation here and and most of the others so we're certainly not without a, a good handful of autonomous shuttle trials that are either happening or have recently happened so I, I think we're in a similar position as a number of other nations as well in terms of where they're at. So there's been a lot of policy around making those pilots easier to deploy. I'm probably commingling the two questions a little bit here, but um, right. the other thing that is starting to get a lot of interest here is the microtransit. And when we talk about microtransit, it's also shuttles, but they're demand responsive. So in stateside, we, we've had shuttles forever, and mm. they're usually single purpose. So a hotel has a shuttle, an airport has a shuttle, a business park has a shuttle. But now what we're seeing is this idea, and it's being promoted also and supported by transit agencies to really embark on these expanded pilots. Microtransit, however, is notoriously difficult to make the numbers work financially. Because if you think about it, like you're deviating from fixed routes, so that adds some inefficiency. You have to have enough riders to actually make the, the price of the driver, you know, work out that sort of way. You have to let people know that it's an option. So that outreach part of it is, is just really tough. So some of the policies around microtransit are, I saw in one pilot where the company went out and went to everybody with a private shuttle and said, why are you spending our money on this when we could all just like, you can hop on our platform. Mm. And I think that's been one of the keys to success is to get those ridership base is where you don't have to coax a new rider to come onto the service. They've just done it forever. So that's there. 
The one thing that I think is more what I'm hoping than may actually be happening is the promise of e-bikes mm-hmm. um, or pedal assist bikes where you're going 20, 25 miles an hour so you can cover longer distances with less sweat <laughs> yes. or, or you're getting there faster if it's freezing. Those have yet to kind of pan out, but that also could be because of what's happening with the global supply chain. And that's, you know, our we've got to figure out our relationship with China here stateside, but also just because of COVID, the, it's hard to get bike parts yeah. for any kind of yeah. bike. Yeah, um, yeah, we, we 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 found that as well. Bikes flying off the shelf, months wait for bikes. It's it's a great the great problem to have, right? <laughs> right. Do you think it's going to stick for the longer term? Like once well, COVID subsides? Yeah, I, I mean, you'll comment there before about traffic numbers going back up pretty quickly. I mean, we we saw that here as well in some states. I'm based in Brisbane in Queensland. You know, when the lockdown was over. You know, for a number of factors, we got back in the car pretty quickly. And an element of that was, of course, not wanting to be on public transit and being exposed to the virus potentially, but also, you know, we love our cars. There's no denying that. So I think we've still got a little ways to go to work out what post-COVID looks like, how much did change and will change. We certainly saw peaks in walking and cycling, you know, when when the, the real bite was happening last year but walk out onto any sort of main street at the moment in Australia and it's yeah it's looking back to normal so I don't know I think there has been a new appreciation for public spaces and sort of ways to move around and I suppose you know moving to the next question Lisa you know what's the big opportunity with new mobility and I was going to say to you you know we certainly have seen quite a widespread adoption of e-scooters. So one one of those vehicle types in the new mobility fleet that seems to have had some success and somewhat scale. So after sort of the e-scooter, where do you think some of the big opportunities might be and the value from new mobility back to our communities? Right. Well, you know what? I'm going to start with what you just mentioned about the sudden shift in the perception that streets are intended to move and store cars. And what we found with COVID is the the real emergency need to have outdoor safe spaces that support economic development. Mm. And people loved it, you know, whether it was for exercise or outdoor dining. Stateside, we have outdoor learning. And the real hunger for those spaces is not going to go away post-COVID. And in fact, a lot of what my company is doing, we actually merged with Team Better Block. And Team Better Block goes out and basically quickly does some of these temporary installations. And they're just geniuses at navigating the red tape. And cities have eliminated a lot of red tape as far as getting these on the streets. And so one of the things that I think might grow out of this are new program, we're calling it the programmable street, where you can actually use modular infrastructure or some of these installations so that the street is not the same thing all the time, but you can easily block it off for a cyclovia or a community bicycle corridor or for more outdoor dining. We just, I think we're starting to redefine our streets are public spaces and economic development tools, not just this 
stayed solid infrastructure. So that's one opportunity. Flowing from that too is the ability to unlock value. So instead of having the only way to make money from a municipality's point of view is through parking meters, it is these other uses that you can contract out. And it could be curbside charges, it could be event space, that sort of thing. But, but I think we're going to see whole new discussions about the use of streets for multiple purposes. I think one of the other areas of opportunity with new mobility, and this may sound weird, is parking technology. New mobility includes parking just flat out it does and part of that is because studies already show if you overbuild parking it tends to induce more driving especially if that parking is free so what we're working on we have two types of customers um we've got the clients who come to us and say build me a thousand space garage and tell me if i need more <laughs> and then the other is tell me how to get rid of parking because the zoning code is just making my numbers not work out and i have i have future tenants who just aren't going to use it so technology is really helping with that second group of people so there's a couple of different things there that I see as, as opportunities. Number one, there's this trend in the United States, especially in big cities with transit systems, to eliminate what are called minimum parking standards. And I don't know if Australian zoning has that. Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. You have to build at least these many, and, and they're kind of inflated anyway. So so what we're finding is the ability, number one, to to actually prove that they don't need more parking just because we can go out and, and assess parking quickly. Number two, the parking navigation apps on your phone mean that you're not circling for parking for 30 minutes, which is circling for parking can sometimes be 30% of all traffic congestion. So if you know that there's a guaranteed space, it may be two blocks away, but just that knowing that that space is there makes that two block walk just not an issue. So that's good. I think that what we're also seeing is this idea of dynamic parking pricing. So we're seeing more parking districts, which is also a good thing because it means you can have more shared parking in fewer spaces. There are actually some like way out types of technologies. So things like self-parking are is becoming a feature in new cars where you get out of the car and the car backs into a space. Well, all of a sudden you don't need that room for doors opening in and out. And I've seen studies that show you can actually supply the same amount of parking with 40 to 60% less space. So using the spaces we have, you know, to better effect. For cars that don't have that technology, there's even these dollies, autonomous dollies that will pick your car gently up, you know, deliver it to the space and let it down so you get that same space savings. So, you know, we're looking at things like that for our customers. Some of the early technologies have a lot of bugs. So we're very quick to say um, it's coming maybe in eight to 10 years, but mm. don't try and do this <laughs> today. Yeah, yeah. Or, or if you do it, use it in a very limited space. So that's another opportunity is, is you know, it all boils down to parking, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And then I think the final one that I'll mention, and if I don't, if I don't, if you've got ideas, throw them in too, because I know you're on the front row seat. I think that the bus rapid transit and autonomous bus rapid transit, electric, where the buses look like trains and they're super sexy, I think those could totally transform the landscape here in the United States, where we have so many of these awful eight lane corridors 
that uh, have retail on either side, but the cars are going so fast that, you know, it's, it's hard to really make it work. But I think that a sexy transit could actually open up our suburbs just at the same time when our U.S. malls are, you know, they're fighting to figure out their future with the big tenants kind of bowing out, trying to remake retail into, we could spend a whole podcast on what's happening with retail. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to say e-commerce. I mean, I, I could, we'll have to circle back for another episode. That's a fascinating space as well. And of course, with, yeah. with COVID, right, some of the numbers that we saw in growth in online shopping was, uh, was quite incredible. Right, right, right. And then, oh, I will throw in one fourth thing because this just came up, is that for the traffic engineering profession, uh, hopefully we can move from a system where we do forecasting based on assumptions with a little bit built in, and which tends to always point to adding capacity, more lanes, bigger intersections, things that are built on cars, to systems that say our infrastructure is fixed. These are the lanes we have. Mm. How do we manage it better in real time? Mm. And I think that that's actually going to help us build multimodal systems that are faster for everyone. So what would be on your list? I love that last idea that you just suggested. It's like, that's it. We're done with the building, the widening, the additional <laughs> capacity. Let's sort of, you know, try and extract every last little bit of efficiency out of here. You know, I think what is really exciting me at the moment is, you know, just the tightening connection between digital lifestyle and choice. Like I'm online, I'm going to purchase something online. The fact that that at some point, not too far away, is going to have a physical planning and urban design response in some way oh, is, is, is just like it's system now, digital, physical, and how connected they are. Is, it's just fascinating and exciting, but, and not a bad but, but the professions that sit behind the policy making, the rule making, you know, we, we've got some work to do there. You know, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I was in planning school, we weren't talking about Amazon and e commerce and, you know, mobility as a service. So, and I was taught by someone that got taught 40 years before me. So you can see the lag at times sort of in our planning theory and thinking and practice. And, and as much as new mobility has a lot of exciting components, I'm actually also excited around our practitioners. Once we get to unlock some of that, what was traditional sort of analog thinking and mindsets to really you know join us in sort of this this new emerging with this new emerging set of enablers I'm, I'm quite excited to see where cities and some of these theories you know 20 minute neighborhood uh, it, remember that idea of integrated transport land use planning you know the, the, yeah. these, sort, these sort of ideas for for years that we've had I think the 20 minute neighborhood one and, and COVID taught us that you know, particularly here in Australia, our, our Victorians, uh, one of our major states here, second largest city being Melbourne, you know, they're in lockdown for three, uh, up to three months at times. And you could not wander beyond like a five kilometre radius from your house for three months. So I just think we've got so many lessons learned from the last year. And we're probably still going to learn more as we transition out of this global pandemic, you know, um, touch wood with a 
it's sort of a, a, an effect of the vaccines. But um, I think it's a really amazing time, fantastic, exciting time. Planners, you know, mobility specialists, and our urban designers and landscape architects. So, I am uh, I'm super excited. So, Lisa, last word from you. What would you like to throw on the table? Um, actually, I think that um, especially since so many listeners um, are either city lovers or work for cities, that last point you raised is how does our profession can we do an audit of how we do things now? Can we do some um, fun, like future forecasting charrettes to really uh, probe what's changing and what's happening, evaluate those gaps, and then transform our systems? You know, they can be pilots, they can be small, but, but this notion that the same way we've done things, like even just making developers stick to zoning allowable uses that's a dinosaur <laughs> um, in this day and age when things are, are changing so rapidly. So I really do want to engage planners around the world in what's a better way for us to do these jobs where we can still do our job of creating and maintaining and sustaining these wonderful things we love while we're balancing the interests of multiple users. But how do we make sure we don't stand in the way so it, while things are changing? So, so I think that that is the perfect summation of everything we just talked about. And in fact, everything your podcast is going to deliver on. So that worked out perfect. <laughs> well, Lisa, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and for our listeners We've been chatting with Lisa Nissenson, who is Vice President at consulting firm WGI, based out of Florida, and one of my favourite humans on the planet who, who I share a very fond and very uh, similar sort of thoughts on with respect to planning uh, and, and mobility. We've had some, some great sessions and discussions together over the years Last time we, we met, Lisa, we caught up in, it would have been Portland, Oregon at the Urbanism Next Conference in 2019. And then before that, do you remember in 2015 in Washington, D.C., there was an... We were tacos, right? Well, well, yeah, but there was an APA autonomous vehicle and planning workshop that we were involved or that you were running. Yeah, so uh, we've, we've had some great conversations and I look forward to many more so for our listeners who aren't subscribing to the podcast you can do so head to your favorite podcast platform whether it's apple or spotify or google or others you'll find us there you can head to our website futureofplace.global and see what we're up to what we're trying to achieve with the future of place project and really looking forward to bringing you another episode very soon stay safe stay well we look forward to chatting soon thank you everyone